This winter series has been on the whole idea that God is sovereign. And tonight's message is the idea that God is sovereign in hardship. I thought it would be helpful to define sovereign. What's it mean when we say God is sovereign? And, you know, I did Wikipedia. Wikipedia said someone who either has power or authority over another. Oh, okay. So I just took a stab at it. It's actually in your notes if you want to follow along. But I just said simply, the sovereignty of God is the simple statement that God is God. He is king and Lord. You hear that phrase in the book of Philippians. Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords. He has the right and the rule to reign in our lives. When we say God is sovereign, it means God is in control. Now, for many of us, when we hear that idea that God is in control and we look at our world, we look at our lives, we say, ah, I'm not certain I fully understand this whole idea that God is in control, but truly is, because he is the perfect creator, the one who rules it all. Now I have to share what I think is just such a great phrase, and it comes from Connie a few years ago as we were walking through a hard season with both her her parents in a care facility, and we actually lost both her mom and dad in the same year. But Connie coined this phrase, and she just said, God's got this. Man, I just love that. In the midst of whatever hardship you're facing, whatever insanity is going on out in this world, I think we can say God's got this. Nothing surprises him. He's not weak. He's not incompetent. God's got this. So that's my definition of sovereignty. So tonight, we want to look at Isaiah chapter 30. And if you have your Bibles turned there, I'm not going to take you to our text quite yet. But when we look at what's happening in the the lives of God's people, in Isaiah 30, there's this really difficult situation happening where the the rulers and the people are fearing that this, this nation of Assyria is going to come and invade and, and just do tremendous destruction and take them captive. In fact, the, their cousins, the ten other Jewish tribes called the Northern Kingdom, has already been conquered by the Assyrians, and they've taken over the capital of Samaria. So at this point, the Israelites are just petrified. They're just so scared. And what's happening is that they are saying, we've got to find somebody who's going to deliver us from the Assyrians. So they send an envoy, a group of leaders, down to Egypt to negotiate with Egypt. you got to protect us. you got to save us from the Assyrians. And God is saying, hello, I'm your protector. I'm your deliverer. This is absolute stupidity for you to trust horses and armies and what have you, when I'm the one that will deliver you. Now, in the midst of this this terrible situation where the nation's freaking out and they turn away from God and, and chase the Egyptian option, they're also just so guilty of idolatry and violence. And there's so much sin and rebellion going on. And God is judging his people. In fact, listen to what 
in the earlier verses before we look at verse 18, here's what's happening. What God says to his people, he says, Woe to the rebellious children, declares the Lord, who execute a plan but not mine, and make an alliance but not of my spirit, in order to add sin to sin, who proceed down to Egypt without consulting me. Then it goes on to say, For this is a rebellious people, false sons, sons who refuse to listen to the instructions of the Lord, who say to the seers, "Uh -uh, you, you must not see visions of God, and say to the prophets, you must not prophesy to us what is right. It's sort of like us saying to Sam, don't, no, come on, we don't want to hear this hard stuff, this truth, okay? Would you just tell us things that make us feel good and make us comfortable? That's what the leaders and the people of Israel were saying to the prophets. And it says, speak to us pleasant words, prophesy illusions. Then God says this, therefore this iniquity will be to all of you like a breach, a wall about to fall, a bulge in a high wall. God is saying, what you're trusting, how you're living is not going to work and things are going to collapse upon you. That's this environment. This is not easy days in the life of God's people. They are experiencing the judgment of Yahweh, and they're experiencing the fear of this invasion. They're just not in a great place. They're hopeless and helpless. And what does God do? Does he turn his back and say, I'm going to find some other people. You're just a rebellious people. I'm going to give up on you. Absolutely not. We see this heart and this posture of God. So would you now, if you're in Isaiah 30, look at Isaiah chapter 30, beginning with verse 18. Whenever you see the word therefore, in the scriptures, it's saying, look back. And I've just read you some text that describe the grave situation that God's people are in. They're messed up. They're far from God. And what's God's attitude? Oh, listen. Therefore, the Lord waits, longs to be gracious to you. And therefore, he waits on high to have compassion on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are all those who long, who wait for him. Now, verse 19. O people in Zion, inhabit in Jerusalem, you will weep no longer. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry, and when he hears it, he will answer. Those two verses are just loaded with the heart of God toward his broken, rebellious people who are just swimming in hardship. So what does God long and wait for? He longs to be gracious. This idea of giving to his people what they don't deserve a sense of forgiveness, a sense of being restored. And it's not just being restored personally and relationally, but actually even restoring the land, which had been so desecrated by drought and and just by the sin of the people. Um, The Lord is gracious to give them a future. What else does he long to do? He longs to have compassion on them. When you think of these people... They're not real lovable. They're rebellious. They don't listen. They're stubborn. They turn their backs on God. They put their fist in the face of God like an enemy and says, no, 
I'm not going to believe in you. I'm not going to follow you. Yet this amazing God who has his unconditional love loves them even as they are enemies to him. And then it says he longs to be a God of justice, a God who acts justly, who will make the wrongs right. And whether that's in the time of of God's people then or in the future in our day or ultimately in the future when the heavens and the earth come together in the new Jerusalem and as Sam preached, God wipes away every tear, removes the disease. There's this idea that God will be just. But there's one other interesting thing. If you look at what we just read, I think God waits for his people's tears and their cries. And maybe that applies to us even this evening, that God waits for our tears, our crying out to him. And what are those tears? Tears over our brokenness, our helplessness, our hopelessness, our being desperate, being devastated, where we come to the place where we say, God, I'm just undone. I'm so tired of this situation. I'm so tired of this this sin that's been going on in my family. And, And you just feel like you have nothing left to do to give, but just to cry out to God and say, I surrender. I surrender to you. I repent. I humble myself. And probably one of the most powerful cries that God's people can make, whether it was time of Isaiah or us this evening, is when we say, Lord, how long? How long, O oh Lord, is this going to go on? And that could be something so personal to you, something at your workplace, something in your family, something in our community, something in our country. We just say, Lord, how long? How long? In the midst of our sin and our rebellion, God sees our tears and he hears our cry. That's what verses 18 and 19 says. That's the God who longs and waits to be gracious, to show us his compassion, to be just, and to respond. It says, I will listen. I will respond to your cry. Well, are you ready to dive in? This gets really interesting. Let's look at verse 20. Although the Lord has given you bread of adversity and water of oppression. Wait a minute, we got to stop right there. We got to stop right there. Whoa. God gives me, you, his people, adversity and oppression? Wait a minute. I thought God was good. I thought God wants my best. I don't understand this this reality that God would... I know there's evil out there, but for God to be the one that gives us the water of of oppression and, and the bread of affliction, for many of us, that's a tremendously difficult thing to get around our heads because we just can't make sense of it. We can't rationalize it. Our hearts struggle with it because we feel like, God, where are you? You see my title here. We just scream, where are you? God, you don't work. 
Where, where have you gone? But men and women in the midst of this, this water of oppression and bread of adversity, let's not forget that this God of love is a God who is just, who will judge our sin and rebellion. There are consequences <laughs> to my actions, thoughts, words, and decisions. God does not always eliminate or protect us from the consequences of our wicked, sinful behavior. Let me give you a few, some examples. Um, you get a DUI because you were drinking too much and you get stopped by a cop. Um, you're in a situation where you got fired from your job because you got caught looking at porn on a company computer. Um, you got caught cheating on a test. And maybe you failed the test, or maybe, even worse, um, you were dismissed from the class for cheating. Or maybe for some of us, we just refuse to forgive a friend or a family member and it just resulted in a broken relationship. Those are consequences that I really wish God would somehow remove. But he doesn't always do that, does he? Now here's an interesting point. I have the New American Standard Bible. And I want to read the two words that I just shared with you in terms of oppression and adversity. Listen to what the, this says. Although the Lord has given you bread of privation, like deprivation, and water of oppression. Huh. When you hear those words, I think those words are a little more accurate in the New American Standard than most of you have the ESV in front of you. Because I think those words give a sense of being a prisoner, being in captivity. And, and your situation's not good. You might get this ration of water that none of us would drink because it's impure. Or we have the meager thing of bread that's moldy and that you, you never would eat that. But because you're in captivity, because you're a prisoner, you are experiencing the consequence, the judgment of God, that this is not an easy time. This is hardship just to exist with bread and water. Now, the interesting thing, Isaiah is speaking both of the present moment and of the future. And interestingly enough, and some years later, the people of God will be conquered by the Babylonians and taken away into captivity. And these words, this bread of privation and water of oppression is going to be their experience. So, <laughs> what do you do when you're experiencing this? How do you deal with that, that hardship? Well, let me say an interesting thing. I don't believe every hardship is the result of our sin, our disobedience. I think there's a variety of sources of hardship besides our sin. Let's talk about the problem of hardship, evil, in a broken world and in a broken creation. This is not a perfect world. 
This is not a perfect system of life and government. So, for instance, we have earthquakes in Turkey and Syria. Absolutely tragic. Over 30,000 dead people. Just almost unimaginable. Earthquakes happen. There are train wrecks, that, trains that derail and cause tremendous um, harm to the environment, if not death. There's some of you who work in a very unhealthy work environment, and it's completely out of your control because it's a broken company, and you're just sitting there as one of the pawns. They don't care about you. They just want you to be productive and get your job done. There's pandemics that kill. There's a health issue that you deal with that, that isn't going to get better, maybe won't ever be healed, and you don't have answers there. Or, in this broken world, there are systemic laws and institutions that result in the oppression and harm and violence against people. Well, what else defines hardships that maybe aren't a result of my doing, of my, my being sinful? It's broken people and broken relationships. And you're looking at one of the better broken people right here. All of us are broken and so in this broken world, in this broken people and relationships, parents get divorced. Parents get divorced and break your hearts. There's violence at all levels. Some of you maybe have dealt with a social media nightmare that's completely out of your control. Wasn't your fault. Some of you maybe are dealing with a broken dating or love relationship and, and you don't have answers. You didn't break off the relationship, but you're sitting here this evening, you're just wounded. For some of us, maybe we're living in what's called a spiritual desert, where it just seems like it's dry. I'm not experiencing God much. In fact, he seems far more my foe than my friend. Interestingly, over the centuries, it's been called the dark night of the soul where you just feel like there's darkness around you, and you cry out what I've written there, where is God? For some of us, we struggle with depression, self-doubt, fears, habits, addictions. We're broken. We're broken. It's not because I've sinned. It's just it, this life is so hard. All of these hardships... All of these painful things in our life just seem like it's unfair and it's unwanted. And we find ourselves screaming, why? Why, God? What did I do? What did I not do? But I'm sitting here mired in a situation that is crushing me, that's breaking my heart. And we scream for an answer. So tonight, I just want to be honest with you. The problem of the goodness of God, this loving God, and evil and an imperfect world, a broken world, just the pain and realities we live in. Men and women, I don't have a good answer. I've done a lot of reading on it. I've thought through it, and I just want to say to you tonight, I'm not helpless here. But for me to say there's an answer that's going to satisfy your why question, 
that's going to somehow, an answer is going to calm the pain and storm inside you. Men and women, I don't think I have that. To me, this broken world and how God interacts with it is more of a mystery than I care to admit. But I also want to say this, that in the midst of screaming, God, why? God, what? I think rarely does God give us an answer. And often God doesn't deliver us from situations. But instead of giving us a why or what, he gives us a who. He gives us a person. He gives us himself. That beautiful phrase, Emmanuel, God with us. That's what's the story of Isaiah 30. That's what's the story of this thing called following Jesus in this broken world, is that he never leaves us or forsakes us. He promises to be with us in the deepest places, in the most insane, painful hardship. Jesus says, I'm there with you. I'm there with you. We got to keep reading. This, is, this gets good. Oh, the Lord has given you bread of adversity and water of affliction. He, your teacher, will no longer hide himself. Stop there for a moment. That also is not real easy. What do you mean God's hiding himself? Well, men and women, I think there are times when we feel, we sense, we perceive God has abandoned us. It's so dark. It's so confusing. I've just had situation after situation that's just, it's a pylon. And I just feel like God is hiding. He's left me. And I want you to hear this. That if you feel that God is hiding and you can't find him, he can't, you can't see him, I will guarantee you in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of the tears that blind the sight, God still sees you. He's not left you. But you just feel that distance. Oh, now. Oh, now, come on. He, your teacher, will no longer hide himself. I am going to share something at the end to speak to that. But your eyes will see your teacher. Your eyes will see your teacher. Are you looking in your scripture? Teachers, how's it spelled? Capital what? That's teacher. That's, that's, that's God. Your eyes will see your teacher. Your eyes will see Rabboni. Your eyes will see Master Jesus. Men and women. That's amazing. In the midst of oppression and affliction, your teacher will no longer hide himself, but your eyes will see. And that's why in your notes, I cited this really interesting verse out of Psalm 73 that just simply says, the nearness of God is my good. Now you say, Fritz, why did you choose that to shoehorn into this? Because men and women, it's really hard to see someone from a mile away. It's really hard to see someone from a a hundred yards away. It might even be hard for me to see Bianca because I, I'm so far away I can't see your, your expression. 
But the closer you move towards someone, the more you see them. You're closing the distance. And I want to suggest this idea in the midst of hardship is that God seeks to close the distance that's come between you and him. He's no longer hiding. In fact, he is so close, your eyes will behold your teacher. Your eyes will have this fresh view of God. And it's him who's choosing how to reveal himself in his love and patience. That's amazing. So in the midst of hardship, God says, I'm not going to hide any longer. I'm going to let you see through your tears, through this, this fog that you're in, I'm going to clear it up and let you see your teacher, your Jesus, in a fresh way. And that's a game changer. Give you a great illustration. What's it mean to be able to see Jesus? When I was a kid, I grew up in a town outside Chicago, and we used to have a summer carnival that would come. I don't know, I was thinking today, was I 8 or 10 years old, but they had this, it wasn't even a carnival ride, it was a carnival something, but it was called the Tunnel of Chaos. And it's this long tube that you could walk or run through, but it spun. And I got to tell you, I'm 8, 10 years old, I'm just fooling myself, I'm going to run through there without falling. Poosh! And I pick myself up, boosh, and I finally get the end, and I'm so upset. I, I run back, and I do it a second time. I'm on my face. Now I'm swearing. Hard for you to believe that I would ever swear. If you know my background, I didn't step into the church until I was 17. So I said to the guy running in, I won't tell you what I said, but I said, this is stupid. Nobody can get through this. How do I, how do I get through this without falling? And he took me to the beginning of the tunnel. And he said, I want you to look through the tunnel. What do you mean look through the tunnel? Look past the tunnel. I said, yeah, what? There's, see that, see down out in the distance? You see that telephone pole? Fix your eyes on that telephone pole. Because no longer were my eyes fixed on this turning chaotic tunnel. And sure enough, that guy was right. I walked through there, keeping my eyes on that thing. And then I said, dang, I'm going to go back and run. And so I went, you know, give me the football. And I ran, I didn't fall. Your eyes will behold your teacher. So I don't know what you're in right now, a tunnel of chaos. But tonight, the word of God, and I am inviting you to have your eyes on Jesus. The eyes on Jesus that allows you to stay upright and, and, and to f- somehow navigate the hardship you're in. But it, it gets better. I, right there we could be done and say, yes, but look at this. Verse 21. And your ears will hear a word behind you. This is the way. Walk in it. Whenever you turn to the right or to the left. Not only is Isaiah saying God is going to give you fresh eyes and eyesight, he's going to give you new hearing. He's going to give you ears to hear the voice of God, the words of God, words of wisdom, words of healing, words of hope, words of direction that keep you in the midst of your sort of wandering away and stumbling and many missteps 
God's voice says, no, my child, this is the way. This is the way. I wish I just could just have my eyes fixed on Jesus like that tunnel. I don't always keep my eyes on Jesus. And I need to hear him say, my child, this is the way. And it's so interesting because what it says, whether you turn to the right or to the left, basically saying that the normal, regular things of life, choices you need to make, decisions, direction. Some of you are facing huge directional questions and decisions right now. And God says, I will speak to you. This is the way. Whether you turn to the right or to the left, I'm going to show you the path of life, the path of holiness I want you to follow. That's amazing. Fresh eyes, fresh ears. But there's one thing I left out. Look back at the passage. And your ears will hear a word behind you. Wait a minute. If Jesus has revealed himself, my eyes see him. And now Isaiah is saying, you're going to hear a word from Rabboni, from teacher. Where does it say God's speaking me to? Where, where in relation to, to me is he? Look at the text. What's it say? He's behind me. Whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Jesus, I thought you were going to go in front of me. You're going to clear the way. No, 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 Jesus. You're my, you're my friend. You're my partner. You're, you're going to walk alongside of me and guide me. No. Isaiah says, you're going to hear a word from behind you. Does that mean Jesus has abandoned you? No. Does that mean you can see him all the time? Not unless I look back. And when you look back, then what? You can't see where? Where you're going. And so Jesus says, keep walking to the right. This is the way. And I'm trusting the one behind me who's trusting me enough to walk in a sense, in faith, trusting him for maybe what I don't see, but he sees. Oh my golly, I can trust him. Men and women, in the midst of hardship, God says, your eyes will behold your Jesus. Your ears will hear a voice, a word behind you, this is the way, walk in it. Whether you turn to the left or the right. That's such good news. But it's not just good news to us tonight. It's good news for the, for the people of God in the time of Israel. Take a look now at verse 22, our last verse. When you see Jesus, and when you hear his voice, something changes. There's something that changes in our attitudes and our commitments and our affections. And here's what happens. Verse 22. You will defile your idols overlaid with silver and molten images plated with gold. So just think all these little idol trinkets. Okay? You will scatter them as unclean things and say to them, Be gone! Get out! In other words, there's such a radical transformation when we have a fresh view of Jesus, we're hearing his voice, and we begin to say, this is stupid. I'm not going to be trusting this idol, this thing. I'm going to trust you because my eyes are fixed on you. Now, look at your notes. I wanted to give you a definition of idol. Idol, 
anything or anyone you are trusting, pursuing, loving, that replaces God. Underline replaces God if you have a pen. And as I said, anything that would offend or make God jealous. It's interesting, there's other books in the Old Testament like Hosea and others where God is like a husband who's a jealous lover and he's upset that Israel's played the harlot, the prostitute. So an idol is anything that offends God, it replaces God. So I just want to plant the seed this evening of what might be one to three idols you want to say, be gone! I just let go, get out of here! Even if there's just one that you're chasing, you're holding on to, you're trusting, you're loving this more than God. And I believe the Holy Spirit will reveal that. Well, now I want to take a risk. I also want to share three idols that I think the church needs to say be gone to. Church needs to say be gone, get out. The first idol is the idol of power. Where we think somehow we, we'll chase power even if it means compromising politically. By the way, if you look at the um, early church up until 312 when Constantine, in a sense, made Christianity the religion of the land, Christ followers had no power. And yet they turned the world upside down. It's the power of money. It's the power of, of celebrityism. Well, we, just, we just give so much power to these charismatic leaders who just shine as, and, and are bright. And how many have we seen fall? Secondly, it's the idol of pride and arrogance. God forgive us. We're proud of how... Okay, Sam's not here and Jeff's not here. We're proud of how big Highlands Community Church is. It's the biggest church in Wausau. We're proud of our buildings. We're proud of our leaders. I am proud of our leaders. I love our leaders, but I'm not going to make a leader an idol. <laughs> and we're proud of being right. How about the idol of excessive certainty? You are so certain on what you believe that nobody's going to tell you. There's another way to look at that. You know, could you possibly... No! I, 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 that's an idol. Excessive certainty. And so when you're proud and you're arrogant, it leads to my last idol, and that's the idol of being judgmental and lacking love. Where we are so judgmental to those who are different from us. I wrote this down. It's what I call the hot-button sinners. For me, for you, maybe you're just judgmental and don't have a lot of love for the far left or the far right or someone who has a different understanding or practice of their sexuality or gender or view the whole race issue differently. They're hot-button issues. And isn't it sad, men and women, that in the world the church is known for what it's more against than what it's for? God have mercy on us. That what's written about the church is what we hate and who we hate. That's an idol. And the word of God says, be gone. Be gone. Well, I want to close by having you take the back of your notes. And I told you, I'd, I'd bring this around. So I said that um, when God hides himself, 
We think he's hiding himself. Maybe he's not hiding himself. Um, and maybe when Jesus is behind us and we're wondering, where is he? I thought you're going to be with me. I came across this old poem called Footprints. It's a powerful prayer reading. I don't care what you say, say, think it is. Listen to what it says. One night I had a dream. I dreamed I was walking along the beach with the Lord and across the sky flashed scenes from my life. For each scene I noticed two sets of footprints in the sand. One belonged to me and the other to the Lord. When the last scene of my life flashed before us, I looked back at the footprints in the sand. I noticed that many times along the path of my life, there was only one set of footprints. I noticed that it happened at the very lowest and saddest times in my life. Ah, this really bothered me. And I questioned the Lord about it. Lord, you said that once I decided to follow you, you would walk with me all the way. But I have noticed that during the most troublesome, hardship times in my life, there's only one set of footprints. I don't understand why in times when I needed you the most, you should leave me. The Lord replied, my, my precious, precious child, I love you. I would never leave you during your times of trial and suffering. When you saw only one set of footprints, it was then I carried you. Would you pray with me, please? Would you do me a favor? Would you just take a deep breath? Just yourself. I'd like you to use your spiritual imagination right now in this moment of prayer. I'd like you to imagine you are in a chair next to a bristling fire in the fireplace. It's quiet except for the crackling fire. See yourself there sitting there? It's warm. It's inviting. In the chair next to you is Jesus. What do you see? What do you see? Take a look. What is the look on his face? <laughs> is it harsh? Judgmental? Disapproving? Is he avoiding? looking at you? Or as you look at him, is his face warm, kind, inviting, understanding? <laughs> look into his eyes. Are they full of love and life? Are they full of delight? He's just glad to be with you. Does he welcome you? Does he lean toward you? Is he 
keenly interested. <laughs> As you look at him, what are you feeling right now? Do you feel his love, his goodness, his acceptance, his peace, his presence? <laughs> Is his nearness your good? Now, with humility and childlike trust, would you ask him this question? Lord, do you have anything to say to me? Would you ask him that right now? Listen. And hear and receive. Some of us, he might simply say, I love you. I delight in you. You're my son. You're my daughter. He might say, do not fear. <laughs> I believe in you. Yeah. Pick yourself up. Press on. Maybe for some, he's saying, I forgive you. Forgive yourself. Finally, maybe the Lord might just be saying, be patient. Trust me. Keep walking. And then simply, would you just ask, Lord, do you have anything else you want to say to me right now? Take a moment to listen. To gaze upon him. Thank you. Mm. Would you now pray and talk to the one before you and maybe simply just say, I love you, thank you, and anything else you want to say to him, please do that.
Lord Jesus, this is holy ground. Our hearts, our bodies, all of us long to meet with you. Thank you for tonight. Thank you for these quiet moments, however you've chosen to meet each of my friends here. And in the midst of the hardships we've talked about and so many that we've not, we're asking for fresh eyes to see you and fresh ears to hear your voice. This is the way, child. Walk in it. And help us, Lord, please help us. Say, be gone to our idols. Anything that competes or replaces you. But Jesus, thank you for meeting now. And I pray that you would seal what has been given. Remove anything that has not been of your spirit tonight. You would cleanse your children. Purge us. And we be the first to give you the first fruits of our praise and glory. We pray this in your name. Amen.